The Traitors, a spy movie from 1962 that was intended as a British B-movie, but is a very solid espionage movie, with a MacGuffin, a spy ring that must be busted, and Americans and Brits working together. Let's decode this one and find The Traitors. Hi, this is Dan. And Tom. From SpyMovieNavigator.com and our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. All right, let's get to it. All right, on YouTube, you'll run across a bunch of British B-movies with various titles. This one was on YouTube as of this recording. We mentioned in our Night Train to Munich episode that British B-movies are low-budget, sometimes an hour or so long, and do not have many famous actors or lavish sets, and are probably, eh, probably made pretty quickly. They were meant to be the second feature in a double feature set in the movie theaters. But some have a very nice story and are worth a watch. One we liked is this one, The Traitors. And we're going to decode that one right now. Yeah, so Dan, you said this is yet another movie whose title is used for different TV shows and movies. That's true. It makes discussing this stuff always difficult. <laughs> and right now there's a show being played called The Traitors. It's a game show. Yeah. Like a reality game show. So we're not talking about that. Yep. So as you said... We're talking about the 1962 movie, Great Year, that's the year I was born, The Traitors. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about this B-movie thing. Yeah. I mean, as you mentioned, they're low budget, and this movie definitely delivers on that. Yeah. <laughs> Very <laughs> well. Very well, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, it's a 1962 movie, and it's in black and white. Heck, Bonanza came out in the 50s, and that was in color. Ice color, too. Yeah. Now... Black and white can work even today. I mean, take a look at the 2020 movie Mank. That movie was shot in black and white, and it received 10 Academy Award nominations. Yeah. So black and white can work. I like black and white. And it can have an impact. But I think here it was in black and white probably to save money. Probably. Because this was, this was a B movie. Yeah. And so, you know, color's been around since 1912. Yeah. The first thing I could find that had it was a documentary called Our King and Queen Through India. Okay. That was from 1912. I don't think we'll review that okay. one. Yeah, this <laughs> movie, it's a short documentary. It's really short. But this movie was 50 years later, and it's black and white. Not trying to give you the, you know, like what they did with Mank, trying to give you a period feel to it. Yeah. Although, um, you know, now, the other the, the other thing is that same year, Dr. No came out. Yeah, and you nice. look at that, you look at that title sequence in Dr. No, a lot of color. It's all about the color <laughs> and there's none in this movie. So I just think, I mean, you say it's a B movie. I think they saved money by doing it this way. Yeah, I think so, too. There's no, I don't, I don't think there's any doubt about it. But because, he, again, these were the second feature in a movie theater right so they're not going to spend a lot of money on this kind of stuff however i think in this particular one the black and white really adds to the realism of this movie in terms of the sense that you get and the feel that you get of what they're showing so we're going to talk about that i think yeah but it feels to me more like a 1945 movies or something but the cars aren't from that period no no it was made in 62 yeah the music in this is definitely <laughs> A 1960s thing. It starts with some drum taps and then a theme that will play often, maybe like 15 notes <laughs> over and over again. The music was by Johnny Douglas. And I love that they say that the screenplay is based on an idea by Joe Levy and Jim O'Connolly. 
That's kind of nice. Hey, I got an idea. <laughs> <laughs> Let's right. make a B movie on it. Now, the thing about this for this, you're saying this music is definitely a 60s thing. Yeah. You know, but if you compare this music to Mad Helm with Dean Martin, Our Man Flint, yeah. any of the 60s Bond movies, this movie doesn't even come close to comparing oh, no. making it really feel like 60s music. Yeah. The thing that surprises me about this music is I normally would hate this because it's repetitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's like the same 15 notes. Yeah. And I refuse to go see the movie Cats again because of that repetitive <laughs> crap. You know, and it just keeps you know, repeating and repeating. It's like the small world ride at Disney World. Oh, that drives like, me crazy. Get me off, right? Yeah. And, you know, here they do this repetition, but it's it's not over the top with the way they did it. And for me, it kind of works. Yeah, right? okay. You know, and in the James Bond movie, there's repetition, sort of. Right there's the James yeah, Bond theme. Different kind, different kind. It's a totally different type of feel. Yeah. But this is not definitely as annoying as Cats. Okay, there's uh, Tom's review of Cats. So, there you go. <laughs> so I'm, I'm good with that. Yeah. I I think it works here at times, but for me, it was like, okay, we should be hearing those notes anytime soon now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we haven't heard him for a minute or two. Yeah. It's time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on, Johnny Douglas wrote those things for crying out loud. He got all fifteen of them, I think, <laughs> by himself. <laughs> I remember being at the museum uh, here, the Art Institute uh, in Chicago, and uh, there was a Kaibat exhibit, and my daughter was with us, and she was like four or something, and she was looking at the drawings. He had drawings there, and she said, "Did he do that all by himself?" <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I tell you the same thing here about Johnny Douglas. <laughs> Did he, he do all those 15 notes all by himself? All right. Uh, get on him. Yeah, get on him. All right. The director, Robert Tronson. Okay. Well, look. He was a director and writer known for The Avengers in 1961, the ITV television Playhouse in 1955, and The Guardians 1971. So, I mean, that's pretty cool stuff. This isn't like some real B guy who's just like okay whatever this is a guy who's, who's done some stuff the movie is well directed the shots are like I said they're real the dialogue delivery was terrific I thought and the, yeah, I agree with you there and the the feel the feel of the movie it just has that real feeling to it you get the sense that you're kind of on the streets with them and the rain and London and all this stuff it's like yeah this could really be happening and it looks like that so I, I like well, that that's part. true because there's nothing f- fantastical about it either. No, no. <laughs> which we get in some of the movies. Yeah. You know, absolutely insane stunts or anything like that. You don't have that here. No. Yeah, you know. And, and look, we're saying this is a B movie. And again, hey, it's cheap. It says done inexpensively. The acting here is really solid throughout. And James Maxwell, who plays Realis, was known for his work in. An Enemy of the State, 1965. The Portrait of a Lady, 1968. The Terrorists in 1974. So, I mean, not bad. I mean, it's a good actor, right? Yeah, but those were all after this movie. So was he getting his acting chops with this? Maybe. Now, he had done 18 TV shows and two movies before The Traitors. But this actually kind of had a TV show feel to me. Okay. I so, didn't, I didn't feel that way. I, I I mean the the length of it certainly is like an hour long TV show. It's an hour and six minutes. This 
the whole movie. Yeah. Put so, commercials on it, you got an hour and a half TV show. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I agree with you on the acting being good throughout. Yeah. But the way they played the American, the Ellis guy, just cracked me up. Really? And I don't know if you noticed this, but when he came into the office on the first day of the project. Yeah. So they meet one day, and the next day he shows up. Right, right. Yeah. He's chewing gum. Yes. I did notice that. And, and so, it to me, it's one of two different things. And I think I saw it a few more times in the movie. I think so, too. Yeah, it was chewing gum. Yeah. Plus, they also got him coffee when he got there in the morning. And Ellis makes a comment about it being cold in the office. Yeah. And the lane guy retorts, don't worry, you'll be acclimatized in a couple of years. Yeah. So, I think all of these were a way to position Ellis as an outsider, this American who doesn't fit in here in London. And as the movie progresses, he wins them over. But it seemed a little weird to me that Uh, they had, it was like, what, all Americans chew gum? Is that what they were trying to say? Yeah, you're reading way too much into that. He's chewing gum. So he's chewing gum. Here's one American who's chewing gum. The coffee thing, I think Lane asked for a couple cups of coffee. So it wasn't like tea versus coffee thing there, I don't think. And he definitely is the outsider. There's no question about it. Kane and his boss, when they were talking about this mission that they had to go on and figure out, they were none too pleased when the general told them that they had to be working together with Ellis, the American. So for sure, Ellis was the outsider. No, that's and, true. And, and when we see that as, we, as we're going along here. But you're right also that there is some kind of a symbiotic relationship that occurs with Lane and Ellis that I think turns out pretty well, right? Yeah. Patrick Allen, who plays John Kane, he was in some other great stuff too and is known for... Dial M for Murder, 1954, Glenn Cannon, 1959, and UFO, 1970. And Dial M for Murder, I mean, with Ray Milan. That's a fabulous movie. And yeah, Alan, absolutely. Yeah, Alan played Detective Pearson in that one. So, yeah, this is a B movie, but this is one of the could be movies we found here that I think is <laughs> definitely worth, well, worth a B watch, right? It doesn't mean bad. I know, it just means cheap. <laughs> low budget. Okay, low budget. But. This one, I think, rises above the budget, right? Yeah, and there's and there are two women in here, too, that have good roles, yes. too. Yes. You've got Zena Walker, who plays Annette Kane. Yes. And she's terrific here. I mean... I thought so, you know, too. She did most of her work on stage. She did some TV and some movies. But I really like her in this, in this role. Yeah, she's good. And then there's Jacqueline Ellis, who plays Mary. Yes. Again, another solid performance. Yes. And she's got a fairly extensive TV background, with the biggest things being the ITV Television Playhouse, yep. Laughter from the White Hall, and Frederick March Presents Tales from Dickens. Yeah, pretty good stuff. And she was in a lot of British B-movies, like The Traitors, as well as The Sinister Man, also with Patrick Allen. Yeah, so she's done a couple of B-movies with Patrick Allen. So, yeah, this is pretty good. So, it is a solid cast. Now... The movie The Trader starts out with a whole title sequence showing us an aerial panorama of a city mm-hmm. and then finally zooming in on a couple of cars and one in particular that stops at a building 
that has large plate glass windows Mm -hmm. and a couple of guys get out of the car. So one is John Lane, the main character. Mm -hmm. The other is Colonel Berlinson and they have an appointment with a general, General Waring. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this Berlinson guy is great. He portrays the, I'm the boss who doesn't want to make waves, but wants things my way. And so in many British spy movies, you see this. This boss is portrayed who doesn't want to do a lot of dirty work. He's always covering his backside, doesn't want to make waves. And here in Berlinson's case, he doesn't know how to manage at all. And he always leaves the conversation complimenting the agent or the team in the most insipid way. Like, as he's leaving. Keep up the good work. I'll try. I mean, just just hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. He plays it well, though. And because he is that kind of a guy. He wants this to be successful. He wants it to happen. And he doesn't want any mistakes that will make him look bad. So that pretty much sums up his his attitude. All right, this is not going to be a high-action movie. So if you like the Mission Impossible kind of action, the Bond kind of action that you see with car chases and everything else, all right, you're not going to get that here. This is more true espionage stuff. This is, I think, what real spy stuff would be like, not the Bond-type adventures. But here we have stakeouts. We've got trailing people. We've got monitoring phone calls and stuff. You know, stuff like that. No big high-tech stuff. No missile-equipped cars. <laughs> Their cars were pretty simple. Or or 47 body counts in the pre-title. <laughs> because there is no pre-title. <laughs> and, and so you got all and this going on. I really right? like, you mentioned the trailing people. And the way they show yeah, yeah. this, it shows teamwork and feels very real to me. But you don't see yeah. it in too many movies. I mean, in the fourth protocol, there's a little bit of it. But you don't yeah. see trailing done this way, especially with a team. And I really mm-hmm. like the way they do that. Yeah, it, it does have, like I said, it it, it creates that sense of yeah. realism. And I, I liked it. I liked that a lot. Okay, so we're at the start of this espionage mission. And mind you, we just killed two minutes of an hour and six minute movie. <laughs> and yeah. sure, this isn't a James Bond title sequence by any means. I mean, and yeah. this is a black and white movie. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned about tracking these people, too. I mean, really, in Bond, you kind of saw the way Felix Leiter maybe was tracking Bond and Goldfinger a little bit, you know, but they had the high-tech gadgets. So, I mean, there, there was some trailing like that, but this is like down and dirty, black and white, rainy day trailing people. And passing Real. people off. Realism. Right, having one part of the team yeah. trail for a bit yeah, and then get away yeah. and somebody else picks it up to make it less obvious that he's being trailed. Yeah. Now there's some nice touches. This is it's a short movie, and they're being escorted up to see the general by this military man, and they have to wait a few seconds for an elevator, which I thought was a nice touch. You got an hour and six minutes, right, to do this movie, and some of it you gotta you gotta hang on to your seats for, because things happen. But yeah, I like that they had to wait a few seconds for the elevator, because again, added to a little sense of realism. And then they're walking down this corridor this hallway upstairs to get to the general's office and they're walking down for quite a while 
and they're avoiding people walking towards them and so on and again adding to this sense of realism and to the wonder of what's going to happen when they get to the general's office of course because it is pretty long a pretty long walk down the corner but again it added that sense of realism and it was just a simple thing to do and i noticed on the clock it's like 3 40 in the afternoon so there you go yeah they definitely (laughs) wrap realism in here right from the get-go which i do like they get to the general's office lane and burlinson are introduced to a major ray ellis that we mentioned before the american and he's connected with nato security in munich and we find out that lane is burlinson's second in command so he's up there this guy's big right and alice is going to brief these guys on what has transpired which is going to be the foundation of the mission all right all right so in this brief alice tells burlinson and lane there was a plane crash and it was near a u.s base and one person had this diplomatic passport so they found some microfilm and the prints are from something that i think is called the triger project about an atomic powered rocket engine ah the mcguffin (laughs) we got a mcguffin MacGuffin. now (laughs) i said i think (laughs) it's called the triger project I went back and listened yeah, to I, this, and I've seen things written about this movie that call it the Tiger Project, without an R at the beginning. And I think I hear yeah, Tiger. So I'm not sure which is right. Have a look in the bottom right-hand corner. The Tiger Project? But it can't be. I'm afraid it is. I've been out of the country for over a year now, and I'm a bit out of touch. What is the Tiger Project? Well, under NATO auspices, a group of British scientists in this country have been working on an atomic-powered rocket engine. I think I hear Triger as well, and I like the way Triger sounds better anyway than Tiger, because Tiger's overused. <laughs> okay, so anyways, we've got this MacGuffin. <laughs> We're calling right? it Triger. Yeah, so assuming Triger's right, I went out to try to find if there was any significance for Triger, and I tried at different yeah. spellings. Of course. But I didn't find much, but I, I don't know of any correlation <laughs> to an atomic-powered rocket engine. Yeah, which is why it's a good name for a secret project, because nobody could find anything about it. Which <laughs> Very <is> secret. <laughs> so we know there is a spy among us who's working on a top-secret project, right? Because from the microfilm, should not have been in anyone else's hands, right? Lane points out that they want to get the entire communist cell that must be behind this. And he thinks that's like four to five people who are behind this feeling of these documents. So it's not just a one traitor spy. So we're six minutes now into the movie and we have what we need to know. And Alice will be working with Lane. Now we got to wonder, is that going to work out, right? It does concern nato security so alice is involved all right i liken this lane alice relationship to the james bond and felix Leiter relationship right the british agent working with the american it's a nice touch here 1962 yeah and i think that is a good comparison i mean and you know lane's honorable and this relationship kind of like bond and Leiter's might work because they have kind of a casual interplay and dialogue between these two guys yeah yeah and it gets better and better as they get to know each other so uh, that's pretty good and then they support each other later in the movie too which is 
a nice moment, right? There's some great lines here, too, which I love. For instance, they're in the elevator, and Burlinson is telling Lane that he must be briefed completely, as Lane was very lax in his last assignment. I know assignment. where you're going with this. <laughs> right? <laughs> and Lane tells Burlinson... Communications were rather difficult from Central Congo. Communications were rather difficult from Central Congo. <laughs> Bam! Right in your face. I mean, that was kind of yeah, like absolutely. Bond, right? I mean, that was a fantastic <laughs> line. And it also shows Lane as kind of this anti-management agent that we see in That's Harry true. Palmer and even James Bond. So I thought yeah, it yeah. was very kind of Palmer Bond-like. But what a great in-your-face line. Yeah, that was terrific. And he delivers it really yep. casually, like, boom. <laughs> I'll drop this little bomb in your face. All right. So they're working on who might have done this, who might have access to the papers and so on. And Lane and Ellis work together to find out who their suspects might be. And they figure out who to trade. Right. right? Well, we're not going to tell you. All right. So they're now trailing this guy. And, you know, they're going, swapping cars and that kind of thing. And there was at one point where they passed this war memorial. And it all reminded us of the deadly cost yeah. of war and what this mission is all about. So it's, it's, yeah, kind of, it's really nice the way they threw some of that stuff in here. When we did our discussion about Night Train in Munich, we talked about some of the historical clips they put in. Here, you're mm -hmm. passing by like a historical statue or whatever, which really yeah. heightens what's going on. Yeah, and, and it's just really a moment in this movie where they're showing this, and it, it do, it's poignant. It's a good focus of the mission and the repercussions of war and what happens if you screw up. So I liked it. I thought that was a really, really Another thing well they touch. did that I thought was really good from a spy perspective, we talked about the trailing and that kind of thing. They explained yeah. something to us using the idiot boss as the parry against this description. So the boss doesn't understand the importance of two guys going into a movie theater for a short amount of time. And so oh, yeah, Lane yeah. and Ellis kind of had to educate him what spy craft could be done in a cinema in a short amount of time. So, yeah, I think it was the difference between Berlinson not really being a field guy because he didn't get the sense ever. he was a field guy. Like, like Lane and Ellis, these guys were field guys and that they had this field experience and knew what things meant and connect different pieces together that Burlinson had no clue about doing. So yeah, that was that was really good. And again, that's a few sentences and it really adds a lot of depth to the movie. I thought it was great. So we got card tailing, like you said, Tom. Not chases. No, no chases. <laughs> but tailing where they'll say, okay, uh, car, you know, the next car will pick up the, the tail now so it doesn't look like one well, car's following the whole goal the is to spy, not to let yourself be known. And a chase means you're yeah. known. Yeah, yeah, Bond uh, kind of screws that up a lot, right? <laughs> when we interviewed this ex-CIA spy, he said, you know, because these guys are driving 
They're not driving around cars with missiles and rockets and, uh, you know, water Arn cannons. Aston Martins. <laughs> no. They're driving around ordinary cars. And so when we interviewed this XCIA spy, as, and check that episode out. He is fascinating. He said, hey, that's the kind of cars we drove. He said, because your whole idea is to fit in, not to stand out. Not to be like, well, what's that? No, you want to fit in. So you're driving ordinary cars. So check that one. Great stories. Good, good stuff. We'll put a link on our website on spymovienavigator.com to that episode. I also well. like the way they right. passed messages. I mean, they showed real ingenuity. And the other thing is the cinema guy could lead them to the whole organization behind what they're trying to find out. Right, which, which is why they didn't want to go get him right away, right? Burlinson was thinking... Just go hey, grab the guy. guy. Yeah, and what we say in the beginning, that Lane and Alice, they wanted to get the whole cell. They wanted to get this whole communist cell all together. And this cinema guy maybe is the key to finding the whole yep. cell, right? So there were, there, were some, there were some great scenes in this movie, which I think you take each one of these scenes that... We'll talk about one or two of them now. And, and you think, that is really, really well done. The dinner scene, for instance, in the restaurant with John Lane and Ray Ellis and the proprietor, this French guy, it's just terrific. The set is rather nice, actually. And the conversation is natural and telling. It's revealing. It's it's telling us something that we should know. in the background in on the these movie. two guys, based on their conversation, because they just met. Yeah, they, they don't know each other all that well. And even Alice was joking about finding good food. He, he, you know, he's like, uh, you know, yeah, if you know a restaurant that has good food, that's great. Let's go there. And Lane reveals to him that he had been married once. And Alice said, boy, that's got to be difficult, right? Being married in our business. And, you know, but he, and Lane was saying he was still friendly with his ex-wife. So, I mean, it's just the same kind of thing, right? That we brings up all these images of Bond and the whole MI6 concept of recruiting agents that are many times orphaned or definitely unmarried and so on. And so we have that in this 1962 B-movie calling that out right here. Yeah, yeah. and Lane also has this comment about how he's eaten bad meals all over the world, which again is kind of Bond-like. Like, yeah, we've got to have better food. Yeah. yeah, yeah the thing yeah, I didn't yeah, right. get was how they portrayed the whole Lane was married and divorced part of this. It felt to me like they were starting to film down one path, thinking this was going to be important, but then they switched to a different path. So Marcel's restaurant, yeah. the restaurant you're talking about, yeah, did Ellis feign that he didn't know that Lane was married? Because there was a conversation that Ellis had with Marcel, the guy who owns the restaurant, and it yeah. kind of sounded to me like Ellis already knew that Lane had this Annette, his ex-wife, and so I didn't get how that all placed together. I watched it a couple times. I mean, that's the nice thing about an hour movie. <laughs> you can watch part of it really short. <laughs> but to me, it didn't work for me because it didn't make sense that Ellis 
seem to know about Annette. And it almost makes me think like something got cut in editing or whatever. Mm, nah, I, I didn't think that. I, I, I didn't I'm think that at all. I'm basically on the conversation con- Ellis had with Marcel. Yeah, yeah. But even that, I, I think you had Ellis. He was surprised that Lane had been married. He doesn't know Lane, right? He just, he's just finding yeah, this out now. But the conversation he has with Marcel, talking- they're talking about Annette. Yeah, they're talking about Annette, and, and and all he knows is what Lane told him about Marcel, because Marcel, he know he knew Marcel from the war. He was in the French Resistance, Marcel, and he did all this stuff. So Lane knew him well, and I think Ellis was just going along with that, saying, "Oh yeah, so you you knew his wife was coming, and who she was upstairs, whatever he said, right?" So I thought it was it was fine. I thought it was yeah, it, it just it confused made sense. me. So. And so when you watch, he this? just suspected. Let us know what you thought. <laughs> Did it make sense to yeah, you? I think you just suspected Marcel set it up since he was such good friends with both John and Annette from the past. So I thought it was perfectly fine. I thought it was good. One line I really liked in here was when when Lane yeah. was talking about it, he says, Let's see, we spent, uh, what, about two months together. The night for nearly five years. The life of a spy, you're never home. There you go, the life of spy. And they even went into the, the part where she she had no idea where he was in the world yep. for a couple of years because he couldn't say. I thought all of that was really espionage stuff that you didn't see. You don't see in Bond movies. You don't see in Mission Impossible. This was really solid espionage stuff. So this, that was a good moment. Yeah. Yeah, and it would have worked for me if Ellis didn't have the conversation he had with Marcel. Yeah, I have no problem with that. Okay. <laughs> All right. The dialogue is really, I thought, rather strong for a quick movie. It's crisp. The words are weighed well because the movie is, like we said, hour and six minutes. It's really more poetic than, than it is verse because in a poem, really, every word must carry its, its weight. And I thought the dialogue was very tightly written and beautifully delivered. I thought it was great. Let's move forward a little bit because there's something that happens in the cinema. Yeah. So they're staking out the cinema now, and there's a movie, Theirs is the Glory, playing. Now, is this some yes. made-up movie for this? I don't think so. I think, again, this being a true spy movie, they're going to show a real movie there, right? That's going to be the title. And they did. Real movie. It's a 1946 British war <laughs> film about the British 1st yeah. Airborne Division's involvement in the Battle of Arnhem, well, which happened yeah. in 1944. So it's it's a nice touch. They got a real movie playing. Yeah, there you go. I love that. I love the street scenes, too. All of the street scenes feel real to me. Uh, this on-location stuff, is, it looks good. And, of course, they did it because... It's, it's cheaper to go really, in a sense, on location. You're going to build all these sets, right? And it feels gritty and real. You feel almost what they're feeling when they're trailing these people and the, the tenseness and, oh, I can't be seen and so on. I love that part of it. And black and white added to that. So well, that okay, okay. I'm, I'm not sure. But, <laughs> but not sure about what? If black and white added to that. Oh, I thought it added to the grittiness. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, yeah. one thing right. about this cinema scene is 
something happens there. We're not going to go into what it is, but it yeah. definitely felt real. And, you know, so I guess right. if you get anything out of what we're talking about, this movie is it feels real, even when a fairly major incident happens in a cinema. Yeah. Anyway, you've seen in some of the Bond movies, <laughs> the body count, even in the pre-title sequence, is enormous. Here, we're 20 minutes into the movie, and there hasn't been a single shot fired yet. Right. right? <laughs> it's like, so, all right, we're not getting that same kind of stuff in this movie that you would get in a Bond movie, which I think is good. There's really this, and it again adds to this espionage element yeah this is not an action movie it's an espionage movie yeah so anyways with what what happens in the cinema gets Burlinson kind of upset and he's going to tell off lane about it and gets in this snitty conversation with lane who then says yeah he didn't didn't like it so Lane tells Burlinson, remember, Lane reports to Burlinson. And so since Burlinson's given him such garbage about this, Lane tells Burlinson, hey, I'm going to resign, and I'm going to tell the minister why. So I'm going above <laughs> your head and say, this is why you're losing a good agent, because this jamoke idiot manager. <laughs> and remember, this manager is all about don't make waves, covering my backside and now he's got this agent who pulls a james bond on him (laughs) yeah i i loved it right he's gonna resign where have we seen that in bond movies after this movie came out we saw it on emergency secret service a couple times right license to kill yeah yeah license to kill yeah hey it's not a country club 007 yeah yeah and i love that in this case, the threat is to go over his head and tell the minister. Because yeah. I don't remember Bond yeah. or Hunt saying that's what they were going to do. Yeah, no, yeah. They, I don't think they ever made that kind of a threat. They just yeah. were going to quit. Hey, well, I'm going to do what I want to do. And a big difference in what Burlinson does, especially when Judy Dench started playing M, M was always mm-hmm. protecting the agent against the idiot upper yeah. level management. And here, Burlinson's yeah. not siding with his agent. So I, I just, I just thought not it was interesting. Yeah, I, I loved it. I think Wayne, again, being tough, just like he delivered the line about tough to communicate from Central Congo. <laughs> here it is, another one. It's like, boom, okay, here's why I'm good in the field, and here's why you don't know what's going on in the field. I'm going. And, and he calls his bluff, and that was yeah, a now, good moment. Another thing in this movie that I liked, right, so there's this antagonism, is there aren't many gadgets, but the gadgets they have feel real, because they are. So there's a picture-perfect yep, yep. thermos in this movie. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to leave it there. It's a gadget. Right. It's yeah. a gadget. Oh, we see a gadget. I think it's the first real gadget we saw. I, I think you're I think you're right. And there I, aren't many I, of those in this movie. I mean, a little bit later there we see a small pocket size camera that's used. There are a couple of bugs planted, but that's about it. Yeah. And it's really the whole 
element of that adds to the realism, I think, too, that, hey, we're using what we have, and they're not exaggerating a, a gadget into something that wasn't believable. These were kind of things that were around in 1962, and so they were putting them into action. That was perfectly fine. And, and another believable thing they did here was there's a doctor involved in, in this. Yes. And he is involved yep. in the plot, but acts as a very good cover for one of the guys in the plot. I'm not going to go into details, but we've seen doctors have intermediary roles before, and this mm -hmm. is another example of it. Yeah, and I thought those were another bunch of great street scenes when this person's walking in a hurried manner down the street and you get that feeling again of being yeah. there with them and seeing seeing this action take place almost like you were trailing them or you were seeing it happening on the street. I liked it. That was really well done. We mentioned this character, Mary, when you said we got a couple of strong women who are involved in this story as well and this other one was mary right she had been working with lane and she works with lane and he says to alice she's one of our secret weapons <laughs> kind of like bond was really a secret weapon in many ways if you know <laughs> what i mean uh <laughs> when m tells him pumper for information whatever <laughs> what's that mean you know? dan <laughs> you have to do do it right yeah so uh, it's kind of we got a similar situation here, except this woman, Mary, is the agent, and she's going to do what she has to do to advance this mission and capture or get this communist cell of four or five people. She's going to play her part, whatever she has to do, right? And there's some great dialogue between her and Alice a little later on. Terrific. Again, very very well done well in dialogue that feels again real but we've heard similar things or it's been alluded to in other spy movies yeah absolutely right because there, there's a part where ellis starts falling for mary and mm. she says she doesn't want to have a relationship in her job right and her comment is this is a dirty business ray we have to use dirty methods. Need I go on? This is a dirty business, Ray. We have to use dirty methods. Need I go on? Now, that's pretty racy for 1962. What dirty movies, uh, yeah. what dirty methods is she talking about here? Yeah. yeah. I mean, is this kind of like when Bond says in Thunderball to Fiona that he didn't really enjoy the tete-a-tete -tete they had he only did it for king and country <laughs> she is the secret weapon <laughs> she is the secret weapon but i, I just like the way she kind of said i'm gonna do what i gotta do yeah and she has done it obviously in the past and so yeah. that's why she's preventing herself from getting involved in relationships i thought that was great it's a simple line and it it, it opens the floodgates in our minds of what the heck she's been doing and what she does to do her job well. So that's, again, boom, one sentence, well-written dialogue, well-delivered dialogue, perfect, really. 
and there's more trailing she even does some of the trailing on the street as well and so she's very involved in this caper yeah now part of this caper there's a trap that happens that the good guys are gonna lay for the bad guys and i I don't want to go into the details of what they do here no but there's a similar trap if you saw the movie the brad pitt movie allied where he's a spy and there's an operation in there called blue dye now i've not found that name in espionage stuff before Mm -hmm. there's something similar called a canary trap but in allied they called it a blue dye operation and there's something similar that happens here in this movie yeah yeah we're not going to go into the details of it you're going to watch it and you're going to see the ending of it and you're going to realize all the stuff we're talking about here is going to add to what you're going to be looking for in the movie and that's the whole idea here we're not going to tell you the ending of the movie and so on there are some great relationships in this movie and the relationship we mentioned between lane and his ex-wife annette it's a complicated relationship but it's really well done she knows he loves his job and can't really give it up and yet they're still they still love each other and they're still true to each other and they still want to see each other and he was going to try to go to paris to see her and so on that really is again only a few sentences here and there in the movie but it develops this whole in your mind this whole relationship that is that you you think is is pretty darn nice yep absolutely right all right so let's skip ahead and we have whatever this trap thing was occur and very quickly we get to the ending I mean, it's an hour and six minute movie yeah. so it it moves pretty quickly you have to pay attention <laughs> uh, so there's you know some nice sound effects here and everything with how they do all this mm-hmm. so the movie ends but then if you look at the marketing for this movie and you look at the poster the poster says she was the alluring bait in a deadly secret war that never ends mm-hmm. was that woman supposed to be mary mary had very short hair unlike that woman in the poster yeah yeah i mean she looked a little more like a net than mary but they didn't use mary as an alluring bait i the poster to me makes no sense because i don't see the tie-in between the marketing poster and the movie i watched called the trade <laughs> okay yeah i think i know what you're talking about i mean there's a lot of things that happen in posters that have nothing to do with the movie just like trailers there's stuff in trailers sometimes and those those things are not even in the movie I mean, they're, they're not even in the movie they cut it they change their mind they release a, a trailer a year before the movie and they decide to cut a scene so i think some of that has happened here too with the posters but i mean mary was and and she said she has to do her work and sometimes it's dirty work and so she would be used as an alluring object if that needed to be yeah but in this movie it didn't need to be. well i don't think they had the time to develop (laughs) all of that kind of relationship thing but it was put out there for us that hey she is bait 
or could be used as bait because if that's what they needed to do, that's what they were going to do. And she was fine with that. So I'm fine with that. I think it's okay. <laughs> okay, so there's two things I questioned about the movie. One wasn't the movie, but the poster. And the other was the, the conversation Ellis has with Marcel. But otherwise, to me, I I enjoyed this movie. Okay. And I, I have no problems with either of those problems that you had problems with. And so <laughs> I would say, all in all, <laughs> for an hour and six minutes, you are going to enjoy this movie if you like spy movies, which is why you're listening to this in the first place. Watch this movie. Right now, there's a bunch of these B-movies on YouTube. Will it stay there forever? I don't know. But The Traitors was on YouTube as of this recording. Check it out. It's really a well-done B-movie. I would even upgrade this to a B+. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's a wrap. This is Dan. And Tom. Of SpyMovieNavigator.com and our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. Please subscribe to our show in your favorite podcast app. That helps us out. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you spending some time with us. Thanks. <laughs>